you're probably doing that on a on a what what is the expression on a house a base of cards or a house of sticks or whatever like <laughs> I don't know the saying it's like you're you're basing your opinion off of very weak mm. premises and welcome to training room talk powered by precision performance physical therapy here we will discuss all things related to physical preparation including rehab performance and education Welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. My name is Dr. Max LePage, and I am joined by Dr. John Herding. Hey guys, how are you? Dr. Nisha Meyer. Hello. And future Dr. Hannah Lewis. Hey guys. And we're going to talk about, um, on the same lines as our previous episode in the realm of student struggles, um, we're going to do a follow-up episode on that, and we're going to be focusing this around... Um, dealing with some of the uncertainties when you get into the clinic um, and you are trained in a school or an academic setting to consistently be looking for certain pathology or something identifiable within a patient that is wrong that you can then go and fix it. Um, And there's a lot of issues with with that model. Um, And especially when you come from that kind of academic model or that biomechanical medical model and you try to apply it into the clinic, you can be left feeling kind of lost in um, the instances in which things don't line up perfectly with the patient you're seeing in front of you. And uh, the, the reality is that happens 99% of the time a patient does sit in front of you. Things just are not as clean cut as you learn in school when you go through testing, when you go through the subjective. They're not all going to say the things that specifically reflect a diagnosis 100% accurately, and then they'll show up positive and negative on all the tests they're supposed to. Uh, things typically just don't work out on that level of simplicity. So it's important to understand what do I do and how do I go about navigating the uncertainty of things just not fitting in perfectly. Um, so that's the topic of conversation for today. Um, and thankfully, we do have Hannah, who's a current student, who's kind of going through some of these, you know, growing pains, we'll call them, um, and, you know, developing an understanding of how to deal with that uncertainty. Um, Hannah, whenever you were in school, did you feel like your experience in school was very much educating you on how to find a problem and fix that specific problem? Um, In a sense, yeah. I think a lot of what we did in school, especially with, we'll just stick with like the ortho series, um, the way you learn it, you're pretty much just preparing to take your practical. So you're preparing to go in and know like what you're going to look for, know that you need to do special tests. So select those, kind of come up with a conclusion um, and go from there based on that. A lot of it is like focus on the special tests and that kind of thing so it's a little bit different I feel like in the real world um which we've been we talked about earlier so I'm sure we'll get into that more yeah I mean in reality the the interesting thing is like the whole curriculum is kind of built around doing that in the sense that you go in after you learned all the shoulder stuff and you take your shoulder practical or your upper extremity practical and your whole goal there is to Put them in a certain bucket a certain diagnosis a certain classification of shoulder or neck pain and you kind of fail the practical if you don't 
pick the right one. So you go into the clinic and then you think that you absolutely have to pick the right diagnosis or pick the right bucket to put the person in because that's kind of how the organization of the academic curriculum just lended itself to be. Um, Nisha, what was your experience like at Temple um, and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I feel like in the first two years, it was pretty black and white with clinical management. It was like diagnosis, 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 like try to figure out what's going on and then using all these special tests to confirm. And I feel like that just mentality can also lead to like confirmation bias on your end. Like, I think this is involved, so I'm just going to look at these things and then confirm what's going on instead of just taking a step back and realizing when you're actually in the clinic, like everybody's gray. There's no black and white. Just because something is symptomatic, it might, it's like chicken or the egg. You're just really kind of playing along with like how are, what's involved, I would say, rather than like what special test do I need to like identify what's going on. More of like what's involved and how is it reacting to things. That's something that I got more from my clinical experiences and advanced classwork. Um, that like applied the biopsychosocial model instead of more of the like basic foundational classes. John, whenever you are teaching at Widener, do they do a good job of, maybe this is, maybe we shouldn't speak specifically about Widener, but do they um, teach in a way that kind of structures the practical so that they have to figure out a diagnosis or do they let there be some uncertainty there? Like how does that go? Well, no, I, I mean, I think most practicals, because you have to have an objective grading criteria, right? right. So I think most practicals lend towards, um, especially as I've been like fake pa- on the p- fake patient side, it's like what you need to act out like you have this rotator cuff tendinopathy and then present with, you know, these are the special tests that are generally positive. These are the weaknesses that you exhibit. And these are the, this is the subjective that you're going to go to kind of guide students down that path where if they do the things they should, they should figure out that it's a rotator cuff tendinopathy. If they misdiagnose in that circumstance, do they, or they say, if a student were to get to the end of the practical and say, I did not establish a diagnosis because of the lack of certainty given my special tests, and I'm choosing, I'm electing not to give a specific diagnosis, but these are the impairments I'm gonna treat, would they, per the criteria technically fail? Yeah, I mean, if, if the expectation would be you have to place a diagnosis on that. Even if they said, if they were correct in all of that, Max, like we would still push them to, but we need you to place a diagnosis on it. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't even think that there's necessarily like, there's some value in having to just play the mental exercise. And I, we've done this, Hannah, as you've been here of like, hey, if you had to, build a case to try to you know identify what you think is going on structurally or mechanically like what would you stick to as your conclusion but then it's just recognizing that you're probably doing that on a on a what what is the expression on a house a base of cards or a house of sticks or whatever like i don't know the saying it's like you're you're basing your opinion off of very weak mm. premises mm. and very weak foundation that um, the reality is like if you were to base your diagnosis for rotator cuff tear on Hawkins Kennedy then your diagnosis is not hinging on a very strong you know support system in terms of what led you to that so 
it's a useful mental exercise in certain circumstances, but oftentimes it probably doesn't matter tremendously what specifically is going on anyways, nor do we often have a, a very very reproducible, reliable way to identify whether your low back hurts because of a facet joint or a rib costovertebral joint or a disc or a nerve. Like A lot of that stuff is just hard to differentiate. Um, and even imaging can't very can't do a very good job of differentiating that stuff a lot of times. So, um, yeah, it, I don't know how to infuse the uncertainty into like an academic curriculum. That's the tough part, and that's where clinical education I think comes into play, right? Like there has to be objective ways to test students, and they have to understand. You know, there's a lot that you have to understand to understand the foundations before you can expand and build your own practice, right? Like understand the fundamentals and understand where clinical education is coming from. And then once you graduate, you, of course, that's when you become a clinician, I think, and, and really form your philosophies and, and treatment methods and protocols based on the education you're doing after school, not necessarily the education you're getting in school. Right. Um, but you need the in-school stuff, the fundamentals of like range of motion measurements and manual muscle tests and understanding special tests and all of that stuff um, in order to to take those next steps to becoming like an expert clinician. Yeah. This might just be my opinion, but what do you guys think about like the current model in academia and like students may being like more book smart versus like a student and maybe from like you being a CI John or Hannah like classmates that you have coming in and being more of like a critical thinker and being able to like, take the approach we're talking about. Can you like see a difference in like student strengths and learning styles in your experiences? Yeah, and yeah. and I go back and forth on this because I've yeah. heard the argument made that like hey, we don't need more book smart people mm -hmm. in the profession. We need people who are empathetic and have the personality who can connect with patients, this and that. But then at the same time, a lot of the issues that we did have in the profession came from a lack of kind of general foundational scientific understanding and research. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like we could almost bridge the gap and go even more on the book smart direction and everyone there had a tremendous capacity for learning, mm -hmm. but I felt like we were missing a piece specifically on the research side and the, like, the foundational science side in physical therapy in general. And that I felt like when people graduated, not everyone's gonna go to con ed courses and continue to try to explore as much as they can. And almost no one seems to have a good grasp on how to really stay up to date after they graduate. And I felt like that was a like quote unquote book smart piece of the puzzle that seemed to be missing that I think we do need more of. Like I, I think people should understand, you know, somewhat intimately what a systematic review is, what the structure of a study can tell you about the applicability and the generalizability of its findings, what are the internal and external validity components that would make these findings likely to be you know, relevant to me as a clinician. And all of that stuff does require some like book smart type of thing. But at the same time, you have to have all of the other qualities, I think, too, that are equally as important. It's hard to give a, one is more important than the other. Mm. Um, but like we know with a lot of 
patient outcomes, they're a lot of times dependent on, you know, how much do they like you? You know, how connected do they feel to their therapist? How empathetic are you being with their, you know, process and their journey? And are you able to listen to them? Are you able to do those things? And sometimes I think the book smart component can lead people towards a biomedical mechanistic approach. And that would be wrong. I think if you're truly book smart, you should read about the fact that your personality and how you approach things matters as well. Um, But I do get worried when people seem to feel like physical therapy is not science. You know, like I even said to one of my classmates at one point, like, yeah, you're I referred to him as a scientist and he just like laughed and said, I'm not a scientist. Like, what are you talking about? I was like. You have a bachelor's degree in science, exercise science, and you have a doctorate level degree in a health science, and you don't view yourself as a scientist. And to me, that was a problem in the, on the side of like, you don't value the book smart component enough. And you're too much on the side of thinking like, I just gotta get, I just gotta know how to do the basics. And then, you know, I'll just, I'll just do my thing. Like, I don't know. Uh, I'm conflicted on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that fits into the, we've heard it a million times, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as an employer, physical therapy school is already weeded out. Everybody's smart that gets into PT school, right? So it's, but then it's, okay, this person has the book smarts to be able to get through a program, take the test, pass their boards. Okay, do they have feel in the clinic? If they have feel and they're a good people person, cool, you're in, and then I'll teach you what you need to know. Or I'll help guide you into the paths that I think at this point have shown that they get the best outcomes, right? Yeah. But then within that, find your own path, Yeah. right? I almost feel like the, I don't know what to dichotomize book smart versus street smart, we'll say. Um, I almost feel like the street smart or that quality of like the feel, I feel like that matters more for the patient in front of you but the book smart matters more for the profession. Like the profession yes. needs book smart folks to drive the research and development forward. But the profession needs clinicians on the front line who can empathize, who can connect with people, who can market our skill set to get the, the value out to the public. So I just don't think that we need one. I think we need both just the role that those different individuals take is probably a little different but i think we need both Mm -hmm. in some capacity i think that that's any medical profession there's physicians right that have no feel that are book smart there's you know that's that's any medical profession and that's any profession in general right like it's just something everybody's dealing with yeah um so to bring it back hannah when you we had an incident where you're like I just don't know what's going on, John. She has pain with this thing. I could I couldn't recreate it with anything except for this high level exercise. Um, so what what do you guys do when it's pain that's not reproducible, but it impacts a patient's life, and none of the special tests fit right? Um, you know how if if you've been taught in school that you need to figure out the stru- the particular structural that's impacted so you can make a change, what happens when you don't find that structure or you can't exactly pinpoint? Oh, it's this structure that is affected. What do you do? 
I feel like when I was a student, I'd go down a rabbit hole of like fish, 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 fish. I can't find it. And then almost like the way you produce your language too, being like, is that painful? Like setting expectations with certain things because I was so focused on getting what's right on paper instead of what was actually bothering the patient like functionally. And I feel like I've learned even in my first year, like taking a step back and having them guide it instead of me guide it sometimes can be a lot more helpful. But definitely when I was a student, I would just keep poking and prodding and then just being like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do, what to do next. I'm not confident. And yeah, and I think the patient can sense that when 100%. you're like searching for you're like, you know this. all this reproducible stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where your te- your standard tests and measures that you learned and seems really basic in school come into play. The body doesn't see itself as like particular structures like this biceps is hurt. It's just kind of stuff that the brain tells to move in certain patterns to achieve a goal, an outward goal, right? So this is where trusting tests and measures where you can continue to seem confident. You're not fishing for the particular structure, but it's, okay, so this person's lacking strength in this test. This person's lacking range of motion here. What can I do to impact both of those? And a lot of times, then everything just kind of falls into place after that when you clean that stuff up, right? Because it's building movement variability with improving range of motion, it's building capacity within increasing tissue tolerance. And as you do those two things, again, lots of, you don't have to search for the particular structure because if you clean up some of those larger deficits that you find, things kind of fall into place. And then you can seem confident and then you can, um, you know, get the change that you wanna make quickly. Yeah, for me, the difference a lot like Nisha was when you, you're early on in the process and you come in with like a list of questions of things that you feel like you need to ask in order to gather information. But then you end up with a ton of little bits and pieces and it's not a story that's been told from the patient. And the little bits and pieces are hard to put together to create a story versus interviewing someone, obviously at the point where you're more confident with it and you're, you're more casual with it, where you're asking open-ended questions and you're saying, you know, what does it feel like when you reach overhead? Or tell me a little bit about it, what it feels like when you do this. And then they can give you a story about that. And you might be thinking, that sounds a lot like a rotator cuff tendinopathy. And you can feel good about that versus you resisting flexion, resisting external rotation, resisting abduction. Some of them are creating pain, some of them are not. And you don't know what to do with all these little bits of information. So for me, I felt like, it was shifting the way that I approached the interview process and making it less of a Q&A type of, you know, interview process and more of a, like, let's gather the story and see it from a big picture. And then it felt much easier to then synthesize and go into the objective component of an exam where I am putting my hands on them and am looking at stuff. And I don't feel like I constantly need to ask you, what does this feel like? What does that feel like? What is what is your response here and there? And uh, the the picture starts to just get clearer and clearer as you go through rather than muddier and muddier as you get more and more confused. Yeah, and I think that's like just have a conversation with the person. Usually they'll give you everything you need to know what's going on. And yeah. then I don't even try to reproduce the pain anymore in an eval. It's all right, these are the measure, these are like the range of motion. This is where they're limited here when I'm going through stuff. And then I just fix that. And a lot of times it cleans it up. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, 
I don't chase pain anymore in an eval. Yeah. Yeah, and there's another there's a whole other rabbit hole you can go down in terms of trying to chase pain too much. Mm-hmm. You know, and that can kind of it, it, you seem if as the therapist asking questions and gathering information, if you seem like you're on red alert for pain all the time and you're like, "How about this? Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Does this hurt?" then the person kind of gets that sense of like, oh my gosh, I need to constantly think about what hurts and what doesn't hurt. And I think that can be like deleterious to the process because then the person's locus of like control or the focus that they have um, during the session is on, do I have pain during this? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen, there was a, I guess a couple studies published and there's been a few on rotator cuff tendinopathy that have compared doing kind of banded external rotation, very basic exercises, to doing those same, those same intervention, the same exercises, but having to time the reps to a metronome. So the metronome clicks, you go to the external rotation, by the time you hit full external rotation, click, 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 and you go through that motion in, at the beat of the metronome. And that has actually shown more favorable outcomes than doing the exact same thing without the metronome there. And part of the kind of thought process behind that is just when you are going through the process and your focus, your attention is on something other than exactly how things are feeling at a certain point in time, that can help to, uh, I don't know if it's a providing a distraction, but it can help to you know, just shift the focus away from sensitive structures and allow you to maybe load things enough to create some change without constantly having this awareness of discomfort be a limiting factor, forcing you to modify and change things and and maybe avoid what you really need to get better. And that's kind of introducing some load and some stimulus there. Well, that's like how many times have you guys tricked someone into a position that you would think would cause pain? Like, bending down to tie your shoes but then you have you trick them into i don't know doing a deadlift or something and they're like oh there's no pain all the time yeah Yeah. i do it all the time yeah (laughs) like someone with neck pain cervical rotation hurts to the left it hurts to the right and then you have them sit on a stool that rotates and say keep your head focusing towards the mirror and just rotate Mm -hmm. your body it's like you're rotating your cervical spine but it's not painful just because you've changed the way your brain is kind of processing that right. movement, and it's the same movement. It's just your perception is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so to bring it back, I think that just, like, simplify your process, right? And and if this just comes down to the whole um, interview process on evaluation, just have a conversation. Get, you know, as you form your philosophy, get down the um, tests and measures that mean the most to you. Go through those, test them. Don't get caught in the weeds of trying to recreate pain or figure out specific structures, but trust your measurements and just go after cleaning those up. And a lot of times, when you feel like you're you're lost, just go back to that and trust that, and you can feel confident in making the change and helping patients that way. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Anything to add? Um, so I'll just say, kind of going off of that to students you know, going through their day. Yes, you'll have some rocky evals, some rocky treatments. Uh, you'll learn from it. So after, I talked to Troy a little bit after, but of course you kind of debrief, see what you did, like what you'd do differently, kind of 
this conversation, you know, was about that. So John and I have talked about that patient. But earlier in the day, yesterday, I had another eval, an ankle. Felt like it went really well. Debriefed with Troy afterwards. He kind of asked me what I thought was going on. I said, this structure might be involved. This one might be involved. This is why I think so. He said, well, does it matter which one? Are you going to treat it differently? I said, nope. And I was very confident in that. So just, you know, each patient, it's a new patient. It's a new opportunity to learn. Like I said on the last one, you're going to learn from the patient as much as you learn from your CIs and other clinicians that you're working with. So, And I think that's a good point, too. We learn all, like, the rotator cuff, for an example, we learn all these different tests and measures to tease out specific rotator cuff structures. But then when you really look at globally, most clinicians' response to a rotator cuff problem pathology, plantar cares look relatively the same, right? It, it, it's all just stuff that the body tells the, the arm to move this way and stuff just moves it. Like the particular structure doesn't specifically make a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's always, like you said, Hannah, helpful to reflect on the process and try to, you know, think about uh, were there things that I asked or things that I could have asked that would have made this uh, go a little bit smoother. But the reality is, even as a clinician out of school, you're still going to have challenging patients, challenging interviews where you felt like, I just don't feel like I gathered the information that I need. And the good thing is, as long as you're making sure that the person's safe, that you've identified any possible, you know, sinister or serious pathology that would warrant referral, you're going to see them again in a few days or next week. You can always follow up. You can always get to know them better. And getting back to the the conversation about, you know, showing that you care. There, as long as you demonstrate that the person comes back, you're going to gather the information that you need. It's just about giving them kind of the open air to give you that information. Some people, there's there's honestly things that they're just not ready to, to mention. And they might need to get to know you as one or two sessions before they say, oh yeah, by the way, this thing that I was embarrassed to tell you that hurts really bad um, is actually the thing that bothers me. And you just want to be the person who opens that door for them to be able to say that when they do. Um, but those, those challenges never stop at least I haven't I haven't seen them stop <laughs> um, but yeah so hopefully people kind of got some um, actionable information or at least some you know I don't know some something they got something from it um, just as a new student trust your test and me- tests and measures don't feel like you have to know exactly what's going on like you just said Max sometimes things come out four sessions down the road um, just make a change initially with the range of motion deficits or whatever that you find and and don't worry so much about teasing out specific structures yeah and if you need or feel like you could benefit from more guidance um, maybe someone who can bounce ideas off of you or ask you questions help refine your process especially if you're in the performance-based realm or the athlete kind of patient management realm um, you can always reach out to us at precision we're happy to kind of set up and see um, how we might help you there's, there's a few things coming down the line in terms of mentorship opportunities so uh, those would be things that help refine this process and help give you the tools that you need to navigate some of the uncertainty that's just inherent to 
um, healthcare and human beings. So please reach out to us at Precision Performance PT on Instagram, um, or you can look us up and get th- in touch with us through the website. You can always find me at maxlepage.dpt on Instagram and email me at max at precisionperformancept.com. Um, John, uh, John underscore, uh, John Herding underscore DPT. I I don't know. Um, Or J-O-N at precisionperformancept.com is my email. Nisha at precisionperformancept.com and nishameyer.dpt on Instagram. Um, SPT.hannah on Instagram. Simple enough. Um, We hope you guys enjoyed the conversation, had some valuable insight come from it. And we always hope everyone is staying safe, staying healthy, and we will talk to you guys in the next one. Bye. Did you know we now offer personalized remote programming, one-on-one video telehealth sessions, and mentorships for both students and professionals? If you're interested in any one of these, please email John at J-O-N at precisionperformancept.com and he can help you get started today.